Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hello there, listeners. After over two years of recording and 80 plus episodes, I am elated to announce that Enduro Bearings has agreed to become a supporter of the Cycling in Alignment podcast. This is a double win for you, the audience. You have the opportunity to demonstrate your support of the show by making a purchase on the website cycling.endurobearings.com and you get to save some dollars while you trick out your whip. Use the code Colby Podcast to receive a 35% discount on any of Enduro Bearings excellent products. That's Colby Podcast, which is all lowercase and all one word. This includes the excellent XD15 ceramic bottom bracket, which is guaranteed for life. That means it may outlive you because, well, it's inanimate. Enduro also makes headsets, derailleur pulleys, as well as bearings for just about everything that rotates on a bicycle. So use your digits to make the keyboard mudras and head over to cycling.endurobearings.com and upgrade your favorite ride now. And remember, the proper number of bicycles is always N plus one, so think ahead. Thanks for listening. Well, hello there. Welcome to Cycling in Alignment solo podcast number 99 million. Thanks for coming to listen. Today I'm going to talk about the seasonality and bioenergetics of strength training. What do I mean by all these fancy words? Let's find out. First, I just want to say thanks for listening. I'm really appreciative of my audience. We're coming up on 100 episodes and that's pretty cool. I'm doing my best to put these out in a timely manner. I'm also doing my best to put out a quality product. I did record a version of this podcast on the way to Colorado Springs for a coaching conference last week. And then I came home and listened to it and decided it was crap and I needed to refine my words and speak a little more clearly, have a little more clarity around the content that's coming out of my mouth and into the universe because we are drowning in mediocre content or even content that's complete crap. And this is not how I can sleep well at night. I don't find any joy in producing a product that is substandard, at least what I mean by that is at least to my standards, that is the best product I can produce. And I felt that that recording was not meeting up to that level. So here we go again. The downside of me producing a product that I feel is up to my standards is that it doesn't always come out super regularly. Uh, That is, I'm not producing a weekly podcast. And there's a tension there because I feel that it's important for me to produce content in a relatively predictable and regular timeline. But of course, if I'm rushed to do that, then it sucks not the goal. So I hope you understand all that. And if you do, that's why you're here. So back to the topic at hand, the seasonality and bioenergetics of strength. That title is backwards because we're going to start with the bioenergetics. 
And first, I want to unpack why we should strength train. I mean, it's November now as of this recording, mid-November of 22. And hopefully you are already in the gym or rather, I don't like to use the word gym because gym actually refers to gymnastics. It's a place where people used to go to practice gymnastics, but I don't really want you to go practice gymnastics unless that happens to be your form of cross training. What we're talking about is strength training or strength and conditioning. And I'll use the word strength cautiously for reasons that I'll unpack. In any case, in November, you should already be practicing strength training. If you're not, well, here's a big discussion of why you ought to consider doing that. If you are, then great. We can hopefully refine your knowledge of that topic and how it applies to you, why it applies to you as a cyclist. So there are several reasons that I like to highlight in terms of strength training, why a cyclist ought to partake in this activity. And most of these are down to what cycling does to your body that's not necessarily optimal. Cycling has a way of twisting our body into a wormhole of crappy movement patterns. So some of the things on our list that cycling does to us include adaptive muscle shortening, which leads to a limited range of motion. So this means that at the bottom of your pedal stroke, for example, your knee is never fully extended, right? Full extension of the knee would mean your knee was locked out. Your knee really should be several degrees short of full extension at the bottom of the stroke. So when you just ride your bike all the time, you don't do anything else, no stretching, no strengthening, no other cross training activities. You just sit in a chair and maybe drive a car. Then eventually your hamstrings get really, really short to the point where it becomes difficult for you to fully extend your knee. And this is problematic. You're losing normal joint range of motion. So cycling does this. And I will discuss a little more around this topic later when we get into primal movement patterns, but adaptive muscle shortening is definitely a thing that happens to cyclists. We get adapted, adaptive muscle shortening in the lower leg, that's the calves and Achilles, because we're not really flexing and extending the ankle all the way. We get it again in the hip flexors and extensors. That's the knee uh, and hip, the muscles that operate the knee and hip joint, right? Uh, knee extensors and flexors and hip knee and extensors and flexors. What do I mean by that? Flexing the hip means that you're moving your knee towards your chest. Extending the hip means you move your knee away from your chest, or I'll say your femur. That was maybe confusing because I used two joints for reference. Flexing the knee is when you move your foot towards your butt. And extending your knee is when you move your foot away from your butt. So all the muscles in those around those three joints, the hip, the knee, and the ankle can be subject, are subject to adaptive muscle shortening when we ride our bikes. This is not good. So you could say, well, why don't we just stretch? And stretching is a reasonable way to handle that problem. However, when you lose range of motion, it's not only that you lose the ability to move a joint full, full the, through the full range of motion, it's also that you lose strength at the end range. So when you stretch, you're not gaining strength. You're just gaining range of motion. In theory, that's a very simplistic way to look at it, but that's 
more or less accurate. So it's not only enough for us to regain the range of movement that we want for a joint, a full range, it's also that we want to build strength or some capacity to carry load at the end range. That's number one. Number two reasons for cyclists to strength train and adaptations that bikes cause, negative adaptations. Uh, one is a, uh, number two would be a loss of the torque ceiling, right? And this is mostly because of the placement of the pedal axle under the foot. It's also in part due to the shape of your cycling shoes, which I'm working on that. And it's also because cycling involves concentric movement only. What does all that mean? So you lose your torque ceiling. That's the ability to produce maximal amounts of force, a whole lot of force. And the muscles lose the ability to generate a very high peak force. And this is because when the foot is held in a conventional cycling shoe with toe spring and heel rise, it's effectively trapped in a position of acceleration. What do I mean by that? So when you walk and run, which is the, the most fundamental movement pattern for all bipedal creatures. Well, it's not really the most fundamental. It's the outcome of the six movements of the primal pattern system in Paul's method. And the, when, when you master all those, you end up with gait, running and walking, right? When you, this is, this is a crude overview. When you, when your heel hits the ground, assuming you're a heel striker, which most people are, you decelerate, you're decelerating the movement. You're decelerating the load of the body in the spring system. As the foot hits the ground, part of the job of the foot is to deal with that force that hits the ground, right? And so you're decelerating. And as you're decelerating, you're in a position of supination. So this is why, assuming things are relatively normal in your gait, when, they, when you strike the heel and the foot rolls forward, most of the weight is to the outside of the foot. This is supination. And it's supination in an eccentric sense, meaning the muscles are under tension as they're getting longer. This is what eccentric load is. Then as the midfoot portion of the phase of the gait happens, there's a transfer, there's a brief instant where the foot is in subtalar neutral. And then there's an acceleratory phase where the foot pushes off. And when that happens, uh, some pronation occurs. So in the phase of pronation, you're mimicking to some degree the windless mechanism. And that's when the big toe comes, uh, remains in contact with the ground and the arch and the heel lift off the ground. So if you want to see the windless mechanism in action, put your foot on the ground and then push down and then lift your heel off the ground and put some weight into that foot. And what you'll see is your arch forms. It, it becomes curved. And the windless mechanism is the tension on the underside of the foot through the fascial system that occurs during that weight-bearing phase. And when that happens, you are, you're spring-loading the foot and it's pushing off. So there's a 
brief instant of pronation, and then the windlass mechanism offsets that, assuming it's working correctly. Someone who's a foot expert may disagree with me on some of the technicalities of the way I'm describing this, but I think that's largely correct. So when you put your foot in a cycling shoe and it has toe spring, what it's doing is holding your toe up in that windlass mechanism position. So it's effectively trapping your foot in a position of acceleration. And you might ask yourself, well, who cares? I like to accelerate. And whenever I accelerate on my bike, that means I'm going fast and I'm beating other people in sprints or up climbs. I'll just accelerate the entire climb. And that's a pretty logical way to think, at least superficially. But what we learn in the world of strength and conditioning is a basic law, a law of nature. And that is that an athlete is only as strong as they are capable of. I completely butcher that sentence. Let me try again. An athlete is only as good at moving something quickly as they are at slowing it down, meaning you're only as good at accelerating as you are at decelerating. You have to control movement before you can generate it, right? There's this, this relationship between controlling force or decelerating force, slowing down and accelerating. If you only focus on acceleration all the time or moving things forward without slowing them down, then you will have limits to how much strength you can gain and how much function you can do anything with. So this is sort of cycling in a traditional shoe. And this is one of the reasons that I have such a problem with conventional footwear. For those of you who have been waiting patiently for the lore shoe project, I am grateful because we're finally making progress on that. There've been some significant roadblocks to that project but it's all coming full circle in the near future. I'll have some updates for you. If you're on their email list, then you've been apprised. So if you are unfamiliar with the lore shoe project, check out one of my previous podcasts. I'm sorry. I don't have the list in front of me, so I have no idea what number it is, but look, search for lore L O R E and you'll find out what's going on there. So this conventional shoe model plus the placement of the axle near the ball of the foot limits our torque ceiling. Why? Well, when you do a squat or a deadlift, one of the cues you get, one of the first good cues you get, in addition to cues about how to organize the spine, how to organize the shoulders to grip the bar properly, how to engage the pelvic floor, how to breathe and brace using your own intrinsic core muscles. These are all essential core, essential pieces to lifting properly, especially when you're lifting heavy. But another cue you'll get is to drive through the heels commonly. If you're on your toes or if the weight is coming through your toes, this will disrupt your posture during the lift and it will skew the way the bar path travels. So in a squat, you won't have a bar path that's very vertical. Um, the same is true in a deadlift. So we want to drive through the heels, but this becomes problematic on a bike because of course there's an axis of rotation near the ball of your foot. That's the axle of your pedal. So we can't really effectively drive through the heels. We can offset that a little bit with a rigid cycling shoe, our carbon fiber flipper, which causes its own series of problems because it weakens the foot and ankle because it is a prosthetic device and allows weakness to develop in the ankle and foot. 
while we condition the muscles further up the chain, but it doesn't completely make up for the fact that really the heel is floating in space on a bike. So finding driving with the heels is a challenge. And this inherently means we can recruit less fibers. And the, the reason I come to this conclusion, this is not based on some double blind blah, -de blah. Science. I decided from now on, whenever I say science, I'm going to say it a little bit like Thomas Dolby. Or actually last night, my wife and I caught just a few minutes of a million ways to die in the West. And there's a scene where they go to the fair and the guys trying to sell him some elixir and potion that has cocaine in it and red flannel and mercury with chalk. And Charlize Theron is like, what is mercury with chalk? And the guy just says, science. It made me giggle. So in any case, that might be how I say science for the rest of my life. This isn't based on science. This is based on me having a basic understanding of technique in the gym. And when you really drive with a lot of weight, try, try squatting and being on your toes. Uh, it just doesn't work that well. Now you might ask, well, what about lifting shoes with high heels, right? Uh, a lot of lift shoes have, have blocks under the heels. Well, that's to, that's an accommodation made for someone who's got a short Achilles or doesn't have flexibility in their posterior chain. So they can still go and lift weight and make themselves feel good. That's what that is. <clears throat> The other reason we lose the torque ceiling is because the muscles on the bike really only have concentric load. So again, concentric load is when the muscle fibers are shortening as they make force. When muscle fibers are being lengthened as they make force, this is decelerating the weight. And this is also what does the most muscle damage during a lift. So to simplify that, when you are uh, deadlift, you pull the bar off the ground, the muscles get shorter. When you lower them down towards the floor, when you lower the bar towards the floor, your hamstrings in particular, let's, let's focus on the hamstrings. Your hamstrings are resisting the, the weight dropping down. They're resisting the pull of gravity on the bar while the fibers are being lengthened. And this is what tears the fibers in part. If you take a muscle biopsy of someone's hamstring after they do a heavy deadlift and you put it under a microscope, you'll see the fibers are all shredded and torn apart and, and there's stuff coming out all over the place. And this is how the body gets stronger. It heals these damaged fibers and then glues them all back together. And then in that process, that makes them stronger. This is homeostasis. This is the body's response to exercise load on a muscular level. And it's what makes you stronger. If you really overdo it, you get rhabdo and then you end up in the hospital. Don't do that. So there's also another factor that points us towards strength training and that is the proprioceptive homogeneity of cycling shoes. The environment of cycling shoes is very vanilla. That is, there's not a lot of change happening. So when you go for a walk in bare feet, you might experience the texture of concrete or the texture of grass or the texture of rock or sand, depending on where you're walking. If you go on the beach, you've got piles of sand and different textures and temperatures and you step in the water and it's cold and you step in the wet sand and it's wet and then you step in the dry sand and it's hot, etc. Cycling shoes, we don't get that. Even playing other sports such as basketball or badminton, you've got 
you're you're going to cut during the sport. That's going to put a different torque into your ankle. It's going to put a different lateral and rotational forces on the plantar surface of the underside of the foot. It's going to challenge the proprioceptive system in different ways. Cycling is really not too challenging. So over time, the feet begin to become proprioceptive dead zones. And I had a conversation about this with Helen Hall in my pod a few episodes ago, and she didn't really like this perspective because I think she's so in love with feet and how much they do feel and how much pressure sensors, pressure, pressure we can sense through the feet, in addition to many other methods of sensation we can have, that I think she, she took offense to this. Um, she defended the honor of the foot, which I completely respect because the foot is an amazing thing. It's, it's overlooked and often forgotten. But I still would maintain that largely the proprioceptive environment of a shoe is pretty much puts you to sleep. One way I circumvent this is by using Niboso insoles, which is a textured proprioceptive insole. I've been using those in my cycling shoes for a bit. I hope to get Emily Splacall, the doctor who invented those insoles, on my podcast at some point. Let's see what happens. So we also have the construct con concentric muscle contraction only during pedaling. That is, there's no eccentric load to reinforce this point. The only way you would have eccentric load during pedaling is if you were a person who made their living delivering packages on a bicycle and you lived in San Francisco and you rode a fixed gear with no brakes. Because then you would be riding downhill and the only way for you to slow down would be to apply backward pressure to the pedals while the pedals are moving forward. That is, when the, paddle swung, the pedal swung up on the backside of the pedal stroke, you had to push down on it. That is eccentric load. That means your quads would be getting longer as they were resisting the pedal coming up. The fibers in your quads, right? When you push down in the front side, the fibers in your quads get shorter. That's what's up. When you push down um, or when you kick forward over the top with your quads, same thing. It's an interesting thing, pedaling. And then... The other big reason for someone to strength train is pretty simple. The imbalance is created in cycling. Uh, one thing I think that's a bit of a misnomer in the world of, of cycling is people like to talk about how strong riders are. This rider's so strong, that rider's so strong. She was super strong. She dropped me on the climb, she was so strong. And I don't have a big problem with this, but I will point out that it is incorrect language. Cyclists aren't strong on the whole, they are durable. Cycling is a sport of durability, not strength. If we want to speak strictly correctly, we need to talk about someone being strong in terms of lifting an elephant or a horse or deadlifting several hundred pounds, right? This is true strength. Uh, cyclists aren't strong, they're durable. Cycling is a sport where you make far, far, far sub-maximal force for thousands of repetitions in a single ride, even if not that long of a bike ride, a short ride of an hour, let alone when you're training for three hours or six hours or 12 hours or whatever, you're doing unbound gravel and you're finishing in 10 and a half hours. This is thousands and thousands of pedal strokes and they are all far below your maximal capacity. If you went into the gym and did one RM one repetition maximum of deadlift or squat. That's the reason, this is the biggest reason why your, your torque ceiling goes down because what you're doing on the bike is you're training at a very, very 
reduced proportion of your total strength or percentage, I should say, of your total strength. And you're rehearsing that movement over and over again. So strength isn't the correct language. But the other problem is that in order to be truly strong in the real sense of the word, I mean functionally strong. I'm not talking about bench pressing or leg press. This is not strength. This is a party trick. If you can put six plates or eight plates on either side of the leg press machine and smash it, this is a party trick. And yes, I realize that's a provocative statement. If you can do that and also go and squat down and lift a car off of a child after they've been hit, that is real strength. If you can carry hay bales on your shoulder, that is real strength for long distances. If you can produce a real world feat of strength that requires not only lots of force, but cohesive and functional muscle coordination. At the same time, executed with balance and precision, then you have true strength. So the problem with cycling is it trains phasic muscles only in the sagittal plane. And this is very limiting. What do I mean by phasic muscles? Let's unpack phasic versus tonic muscles. And this is uh, a broad way to look at things. We can generally speaking categorize muscles as phasic or tonic. It's, it's a very broad brush to use that terminology because technically speaking, all muscles have some characteristics of phasic action and some have tonic. But let's define the concepts first. Phasic is prime mover. It's fast twitch fibers uh, generating lactate running off of glucose. And phasic action is always such that you have a shorter, higher, a higher energy output, and it's for a shorter duration. And generally speaking, it recruits more fibers, uh, larger force, right? So phasic muscle recruitment would be high in an activity like a 45 second interval, right? Tonic muscles or tonic fibers are muscles that support phasic, phasic action. And they're what drive phasic action in a way that is supple and smooth and has precision. So this is the problem with a leg press. And this is also the problem with a bicycle. They are both machines. <clears throat> so when you make a lot of force on a leg press, what you're doing is you're training the phasic muscles, but ignoring the tonic muscles because you don't require any stabilization or there's no balance component to a leg press machine. Whereas when you do a back squat, you have to balance the bar on your back and engage the core and the muscles that travel on either side of the spine and the pelvic floor and the muscles of the deep abdominal cavity. You've got to engage external and internal hip rotators. You've got to engage the muscles in the ankle and the arch of the feet. So the reason everyone can smash way more weight on a leg press machine than they can a squat, even though from a 50,000 foot view, you might think they're really the same exercise. They're not at all because in a squat, of course, you have to balance the bar and there are many, many weak potential weak links in the chain. So this is where I come to the point in the podcast 
at which I will make a very unpopular sent, uh, statement. Here I am again expressing supporting unpopular opinions. If you're a cyclist and you're training in the gym or training strength and conditioning, undertaking strength and conditioning training to better yourself as an athlete, I submit that you should never, ever, ever use machines of any kind in the gym because they will make your imbalances worse. One of the biggest problems I see in my fit studio is the imbalance between phasic and tonic muscle systems. That is someone has a lot of strength, but they can't control that strength. So this is the equivalent of buying a 1983 Corolla and taking it to a hot rod mechanic shop and having them install a 600 horsepower race engine in it and not making any other upgrades. No one would do this. Why would you not do this? Even if you're not a car person, this analogy should be pretty obvious. I'm not a car person and I'm making the analogy. You drive your new Corolla out of the shop and it's got this massive engine in it and you floor it and you go like a bat out of hell on the first road in a straight line but you've made no other changes to the car. So the car was built as a system and the system has suspension that's made for an 83 horsepower gasoline engine, basically like a crappy little engine. So the second you turn the car, the suspension will not be able to handle the power of the new engine and you will probably go off the road and crash into a tree. You didn't upgrade all the systems at the same time. And this is the exact equivalent of going into a gym and doing tons of strength work on a leg press, a hamstring machine, a calf press machine, a leg extension machine, an ab curl machine, and whatever else you wanna put in that pile. Because you're not training the tonic muscle systems, the supporting or postural muscles, at the same time you're training the phasic system. And cyclists are already quite, we'll say, horrendously, in many cases, out of balance in this respect. They have highly conditioned phasic muscles from thousands of pedal strokes, especially if you're doing lots of intervals. But they neglect to train the tonic muscle system that goes with it. Why is this happening? Because it's simple. Bicycles are machines. So they demand phasic muscle response and they also demand tonic muscle guidance, but they don't train tonic muscles. They let tonic muscles become lazy. So every time you ride your bike, the delta between these two systems becomes greater. So this is the number one reason to strength train and to do it not using machines is to bring yourself back into balance. And the further you get off track with that, the more likely you are to become injured or challenged. As Mike Salemi said on my pod discussion with him, you are most likely to get injured in the plane in which you do not move. So when I see cyclists who never move in the frontal plane or the transverse plane, and then they we do a tiny movement in our movement screen and they have a very big challenge controlling their body when moving in those directions, then I know that they're asking for trouble. If you don't know what the sagittal transverse and frontal planes are, I will let you make the search engines, but think of them as simple ways of moving. Actually, I'll define them really quickly and easily. Sagittal plane, riding a bike or running and walking. 
which way are your limbs moving? They're moving in the sagittal plane. If you want a frontal plane exercise, go do a cartwheel. If you want a transverse plane exercise, put your arms out in a T and rotate your torso around an axis that runs vertically through your body. That's transverse plane. There you go. So when we're considering this model of fast twitch versus slow twitch or phasic versus tonic muscles or postural, uh, sorry, uh, we'll say prime moving versus postural muscles in the right order, we want to maintain balance in those equations. And simply put, from a big picture perspective, the, only, the way to do this is to do perform exercises, strength exercises that force you to balance the body at the same time as gaining strength. And as a consequence of that, you will move less weight initially, but you will be working the system holistically. I'm not saying everyone has to learn how to do squats on a stability ball all the time. That's not the point. We don't have to have the most unstable surface under your feet. Simply doing back squats in a gym on the floor can be enough. And on that topic, while we're there, don't strength train in running shoes. This is crap. This is the same problem as you might actually think, well, if I want an unstable surface under my foot, why don't I use a running shoe with an inch of foam? And your logic, again, is not completely without merit. But during strength training, we actually want as close to a naked foot as we can get. Why? Because any shoe with motion control will allow you to lean on it and will cause weakness in the system. We want your foot to be an anchored, stable, stable pillar to produce force and strength with higher load above it. So for me, I train barefoot or in fever and five fingers. That's just my, my jam. Some gyms won't let you in their door without shoes on. In my opinion, it's probably the best way to train. Although I will say you should wash the heck out of your feet. There's nothing dirtier than a gym floor. Well, maybe a local park where everybody walks the dog, but in any case. Okay, briefly, I want to talk about some misconceptions of training. Then we'll get into bioenergetics. One, hopefully this isn't a dead horse because I know I've spoken about some of these in my pod in the past. A lot of cyclists are afraid they're going to gain muscle. This is a really old school way to think about things. It's pretty simple. If you don't want to gain muscle, avoid the zone of hypertrophy, which is probably between 12 and 16 reps for most exercises, but we'll unpack why that may or may not be the case. That said, most cyclists don't gain muscle. Why? Because there's an interference effect between strength training and endurance training. So if you're training more than 12 hours a week on the bike, gaining muscle for most athletes is pretty challenging. There are several reasons why. One, when you train, when you apply a training load to the system, the body's always trying to return to homeostasis and it's going to prioritize the bigger load. It's going to respond to the bigger load. And in terms of volume, cycling is definitely the bigger load. Whether or not that's the bigger physiological impact, different discussion. However, if you're riding 12 or 15 or 25 hours a week on the bike, and then you go and lift really heavy, two things are going to happen. One is your body's going to put a brake on how hard it will let you lift 
because of the endurance load you have in your muscles and all the concentric load, when you go to load the muscles eccentrically, it's going to, the nervous system will prevent you from lifting super heavy in most instances, especially if you're not an athlete with a history of strength and conditioning in your, your bones. There's a natural interference effect there. The second is that as you're super glycogen depleted from all that endurance riding, you're gonna go home and load up on a bunch of carbs. And that means by definition, you're probably not gonna eat enough protein because the human stomach is only so big. And in order to gain strength, most athletes need 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal three times a day. And when you're eating, when you're riding 15 or 18 hours a week, you gotta fill yourself up with a lot of carbohydrates. So unless you're some Peter Atia keto dude, you're probably not going to get enough protein when you're also training that much on the bike, which means that pretty quickly your recovery is going to be limited and you're going to not be able to put on as much muscle. So in the subsequent gym sessions, you won't have regained the strength from tearing down the muscle fibers and then your gains will just be stalled. In order to gain strength, you have to lift heavy and consume enough protein, a lot of protein, more protein than most people eat unless they're really actually consciously trying to gain weight. Most endurance cyclists will not consume enough protein to accomplish this goal. There are exceptions to this. Some athletes eat enough protein and they put on muscle naturally, even though they're training a fair amount on the bike. Even if this is the case, we also have to acknowledge that there's a baseline weight set point. And most of the time when athletes gain muscle, they will simultaneously lose fat. Why? Because they're eating a lot of protein, which has a hyothermogenic effect and takes more calories to ingest and process. But also the body likes to stay around the same weight. So if you're gaining muscle, you'll tend to lose fat. And guess what happens if you gain muscle and lose fat? your VO2 goes up. So unless you're doing, you know, only pec flies and push-ups with a weight vest and lat pull downs, and you only gain three kilos of muscle in your upper body, the chances of you going slower on the bike, especially on a hill, because you gained some strength and lost some fat are very, very low. If you gain lower body mass and your leg gets stronger, it will almost assuredly, I won't say 100%, but there's a very high probability that it will result in you cycling faster. If not in the short term, then in the long term, it will probably produce some durability in your system that will pay off months down the road later in the season. So, this is a myth that needs to be dispelled that if I gain muscle, I'm going to be slow. This is, this is garbage thinking. Also look at the modern crop of the world's best riders and watch how they train. I mean, look at athletes like Peter Sagan and other riders who we can see their gym routines on YouTube. These athletes are not screwing around in the gym. They're making real gains. So this is the way to think about things. The super emaciated climber body is hopefully becoming a thing of the past. It's not a balanced way to go through life, nor is it really so attractive. And I say that from a place of compassion, even though it may not sound like it. 
The second big objection people to have to strength training is that they're always trashed when they go to ride their bike. I'm going to unpack that more in bioenergetics, which is the next section. But suffice it to say that if you're doing that, it's just because you're training incorrectly in the gym and you're doubling up on a specific energy system. That's what's happening. So when you adjust how you train in the gym and you consume some more protein, that problem can most of the time be averted. Uh, the third objection I see is that I don't want to look like a bodybuilder, which relates to objection one about gaining muscle. But some people are just concerned that their physique is going to change. And I find that some of this is rooted in the belief system that being an emaciated climber with a sunken chest and no biceps is cool looking. And I'll just disagree with you. I think that what you look like is someone who can't lift their own UCI legal road bike onto a roof rack. And that's pathetic. I'm not saying everyone should be jacked or ripped and have all these yoked biceps and deltoids and stuff. That's not my objective. But I do think that a balanced body with good muscle tone and proportional and appropriate muscle development is the most attractive and functional human form we can assume. And it's a project I've been working on to improve my own physique uh, post-professional racing career. And I don't know, at some point I'll release some videos of me doing exercise with my shirt off and you guys can slaughter me if you want to at that point. I'm not trying to be Mr. You know, super buff or anything. That's not the objective. I'm not here to be a bodybuilder either. Uh, nor do I believe that, to be clear, I'm not saying that people should be vain about the aesthetics of their body. That's not the objective. The objective is to develop functional strength and be an awesome human, right? Uh, some of this is driven by thinking about thinking along the same lines as Peter Atia and his Sedentarian Olympics, where he comes up with a list of things you want to do when you're 85, 95, 100 years old, like pick up your great grandkids or lift your carry-on luggage into the overhead compartment without help or carry your carry-on luggage up a set of stairs if the escalator's broken at the airport. These are objectives that he has for his later years in his life. And I think this is a really smart way to think about how we want to be able to function as we age, right? What do you want to be able to accomplish? Do you have to have your granddaughter go to the grocery store with you? Or can you lift a, an eight pound grocery bag from the cart into the back of your own car? How independent do you want to be? Or do you want to be dependent on other humans to, to lift all your shit around? Uh, the last conception misconception about strength training I'll, I will review is that you must go to failure in each set in order to make gains. This is also garbage thinking. This is not true. This is an old school carryover from bodybuilding. And it assumes that the goal of any strength training program is only hypertrophy, which is the growth of muscle. And this goes back also to objection number one or misconception number one, which is gaining too much muscle in the gym. And that some of that is based on the belief that the only way to strength train is to gain muscle. That is what strength training is for. And that's not actually true. We can improve the strength of a muscle without increasing size or mass in most instances. How? Well, by strengthening the neurological circuit. So again, reversing to 
adaptive muscle shortening and loss of torque sealing. Part of the reason that the loss of torque sealing happens during cycling is because less and less fibers are recruited more frequently during exercise and the body becomes accustomed to that. So when you're riding around at a torque of 21 Newton meters for two hours, three hours in your ride, this is the amount of force you're putting into the pedals. Then you go to the gym and you squat and you do one RM and you produce several hundred Newton meters of force for that one squat. If you don't squat for six months straight or you don't do any heavy lifting or touch your peak torque for months straight, that peak will, of course, start to get lower and lower and lower because the body only maintains the ability to do that which is trained, right? Otherwise known as if you don't use it, you will lose it. So we have to maintain our torque ceiling in order to keep it tip top. We got to touch it every once in a while. This is why when you're tapering for a, a peak event, you touch all the energy systems and you do that multiple times to make sure everything's turned on going into your championship event or your season goal event, whatever that is. So we have to lift heavy stuff in order to maintain the peak of our torque generating abilities. And when we ride bikes at some tiny fractional percentage of our peak for many, many months, that peak will drop. When we're strength trained initially, and this gets a bit into periodization, the first phase is really called anatomical adaptation in sun systems anyway. You can call it whatever you want. But the concept is you're getting used to the movement, but we're also turning on the muscle fibers that have perhaps lain dormant, or we're, we're reigniting that torque ceiling. We're waking up the system by using eccentric movement for the first time in many months, assuming you haven't strength trained in a while, or, nor have you done anything that would involve a lot of eccentric load. And we're turning on that neurological pathway and we're asking the body to generate more force. You can do that without going to failure in a set. There are lots of ways to do that by playing with time under tension and continual tension and unstable surfaces and different types of exercises. So that's what's up. Briefly, I want to unpack the six primal movement patterns. This is a really important concept to understand. This is Paul Cech's system of teaching. And I think it's one of the most fundamental things that I've learned in his system, fundamentally important. We can break all movement down into six primal movement patterns, six archetypes of movement. And we do this so that we can examine each archetype independently and decide how the athlete moves, whether they're deficient in a primal movement pattern or whether they are proficient in it, whether they achieve primal standard, which is simply mastery of that movement in body weight, absolute mastery, perfection. And if they can achieve primal standard, then we are authorized to add load. But if you cannot achieve primal standard in a particular movement pattern, this tells us that we've got to regress your exercise levels until you can master it. What are our six primal movement patterns? It's pretty simple. A squat, a lunge, a hip hinge or deadlift, a push, a pull, and a twist. I went through those really fast. A squat, imagine a back squat, then contrast it with a deadlift, deadlift or hip hinge. 
These two are really fundamental, and also it's important to understand the difference. The simplest way I can illustrate the difference between these was explained to me a few years ago by someone I've forgotten whom. Probably heard it on a podcast. In a squat, the hips primarily translate vertically. That is, they mostly move up and down. In a deadlift, the hips move horizontally. That is, they move back and forth. This is why when you deadlift with a conventional bar, the bar moves as close to your shins and thighs as possible because you're pushing your hips back. Then we have a lunge. A lunge is simply a squat, but on one leg. So it is inherently more challenging than a squat because it introduces a balance challenge and a torque to the pelvis, which has to be negotiated. What's interesting about primal movement patterns is how they apply to cycling, at least in this discussion. So cycling is primarily a hip hinge. When you sit on a saddle and you bend forward to grab your handlebars, you are hinged at the hip. So when I look at someone's deadlift in this, in my movement patterns or their hip hinge, their body weight hip hinge, it tells me a bit about how they hinge naturally. And then if they get on the bike and their hinge sucks, meaning they have too much spinal flexion and not enough movement at the hip. Well, the first thing that tells me is that their saddle is probably wrong. So then begins the process of client education. The second movement pattern that happens on a bike is lunges. So cycling is fundamentally a hip hinge. It's a static hip hinge. You're not hinging in and out. You're not, you're not standing up and hinging down. You're, you hinge forward at the hip and then you stay hinged at the hip. And then in that hip hinged position, you lunge, you push down with one leg and then you push down with the other leg, push down with one leg, down with the other leg, concentric lunges. That's what cycling is. There's a little bit of pulling on the bars when you stand up at the saddle, out of the saddle. You push down with one leg and you pull up with the ipsilateral or same-sided arm at the same time. By the way, that's backwards compared to all other movements. When you run and walk, you push down with the left leg and the right arm comes forward. Right? So... This is one of the ways in which cycling deprograms the human body from normal movement. It deprograms your march and the spinal rotation that happens, the spinal engine and twisting that happens during normal gait and running. But anyway, there's a little bit of pulling on the bike, on the bars, when you pull on that bar with the ipsilateral arm. In a track standing start, you pull up with both arms at the same time, if you're doing it correctly, while you push down with one leg until the bike begins to rock and the cadence increases and then you've got to go more to an ipsilateral pull. There's a little bit of pushing in cycling. You're supporting the weight of your torso on the handlebars, so that's a push. It's a static push, an isometric push. There's a little bit of pushing in mountain biking when you pump the bike to go downhill, right? Or down a berm or something, or into a berm, down, a, down the, the drop of a jump so you can accelerate. There's a little bit of pushing on the bars when you're counter steering. I don't like that term because it's confusing. At least for me, it was. But the point is you push on the bars to counter steer. And there's pushing in a few other areas of cycling, but not much, right? You're, when you're pushing, it's mostly static. There's not a lot of flexion or extension that happen at the elbow or the shoulder. You basically are just applying some force to the bars and the hands move a little bit. There's a little bit of twisting, a very small amount of twisting in cycling. 
when you sprint, there's a little bit of twisting more of the bike than of the torso. The, when you climb out of the saddle, there's a bit of twisting more to the bike than the torso. There's a little bit of twisting in the upper body when you handle your mountain bike, especially if you're doing radical tabletops and stuff. Okay, cool. All right, so that was most of our primal movement patterns. Let's see, let's review. Cycling is mostly a hip hinge or deadlift style of movement. Uh, it's also mostly lunges. Those are the two big ones. There's a little bit of push, a little bit of pull, a little bit of twist. What did I miss? Squatting. Here's a pop quiz for you. Is squatting bilateral or unilateral? Meaning, does it use both legs or one leg? Well, squatting is bilateral because lunging is a unilateral squat. Here's the quiz. How much cycling is bilateral? I'm going to give you five seconds to think about it. How much cycling is bilateral using both legs at once? Some people get confused on this, but some people answer it correctly right away. The answer is zero. No cycling is bilateral. The only possible exception would be if you're mountain biking and you're pushing down on both pedals at once when the cranks are in a horizontal position. That would technically be a split stance bilateral isometric lunge, really. It's not even a squat. It's a lunge because you're split stance because one foot is in front of the other. So squatting is the least applicable primal movement pattern to cycling directly. Does that mean we never squat when we do strength and conditioning? Well, no. Part of the goal of strength and conditioning is to put your body into balance. So you do things that you suck at. It's not only to make you better at what you're good at. Remember, training is two parts. Part of it is training your weaknesses, and the other part is weaponizing your strength. And from a big picture periodization perspective, I would argue that the farther you are in the annual cycle from your goal, the more you should be working on your weaknesses. And the closer you get to your goal, the more you should be weaponizing your strengths. But that's just my personal coaching philosophy. Not every coach will agree with that. So squatting is the least applicable of the movement patterns. Why do we care about these movement patterns? Again, because if I put someone in a bodyweight lunge and I can see that their ankles are super unstable and their knees are flailing all over the place and they don't track properly when they step forward and lunge and then step back up to standing. If they have trouble balancing, if the foot drags, if they don't have the right dorsiflexion in the toes, if their ankles don't have the right dorsiflexion, if their knees don't flex right, or if their knee hurts or pops while they're lunging, or if their hips really dump to one side or the other while they're lunging, this tells me that they do not have or meet primal standard with a body weight lunge. Or if when viewed from the side, the torso kicks way forward or the lower leg kicks way forward, it is not kept in vertical. This tells me that athlete is most likely glute dominant and or quad dominant which means that they've got some deficiencies in other areas of the lower leg. So the same thing is true of the deadlift. As I mentioned, if I see someone with a good ability to hip hinge, what I mean by that is when you, when you drop into your deadlift, can you actually push your hips back? Or are you trying to turn it into a squat? And when you push your hips back, is your lumbar spine rounded or is it flat? Can you keep it in, in a flat position, a neutral position, we'll say? Uh, do you drop into a big position of thoracic kyphosis or rounding flexion of the, kypho the flexion of the thoracic spine? 
that means that the upper back is going to curve forward. When you do your deadlift, do your shoulders pronate excessively? Do they drop down towards the weight or can you keep them anchored? Do you have enough shoulder strength and stability to keep your shoulders in neutral when you've got a little weight in your hands? Relevant questions. These are all things we can look at during a movement screen to figure out how someone's making force. What is their strategy? And I'll tell you that broadly speaking, you can associate most athletes with a squat pattern or a deadlift pattern. And the people who are good deadlifters, well, okay, if the hips translate mostly horizontally in a deadlift, this means that these people are reliant on hip strength and glute strength. If people try to drop the butt down, they're flexing and extending the knees more, they're probably more quad dominant. So generally speaking, people are either better at deadlifting or better at squatting and as an observation, if they're good at deadlifting, they'll try to turn their squat into a deadlift, meaning they won't want to bend as much at the knees and they'll try and use the hips more. Conversely, if someone's good at squatting, they'll try to turn their deadlift into a squat. And this means they'll use the knees more than they ought to. This isn't good or bad, it's just information. And it tells us how someone solves the equation. If someone is squat oriented and they're trying to turn everything into a squat, when they get on the bike, they're probably going to focus most of the torque at their knees. So if they get on the bike and their knees are all over the place because they have really unstable ankles and poor core control at the pelvis, and they're trying like heck to pedal that bike with their knees, focusing the force or the torque at the knee joint, the chances of them having knee problems are probably pretty high. On the other hand, if someone's got shit for core control, and they want to turn everything into a deadlift and they want to use their hips and their glutes, well, there's a good chance they're going to end up with lower back pain. There's my observations for the day. Those are generalities. And remember what Steve Hogg taught me when I went to train with him as a fitter is the only rule in bike fitting is there are no rules in bike fitting because God is a novelty generator and everyone's unique. So the second you think you've got some magical pattern figured out, Someone will walk through that door and destroy the belief system you built up around that pattern. Cool. Okay, bioenergetics of strength training. Let's get into it. Then I can wrap up with seasonality. Here's what I've observed about humans and the way we make energy, right? How do we generate ATP? Let's look at our classic physiological curve. Let's assume that somebody's doing a maximal effort. For the first 10 to 12 seconds, we can call this neuromuscular power. For seconds 12 to 45, we'll call it glycolytic power. And for 45 seconds up to about five minutes, we start to rely on the aerobic energy system. That peaks at around, output of that peaks at around three to five minutes, maybe eight minutes, depending on the athlete. There's quite a bit of variation in there, but five minutes is a good target for most athletes. Some key points. One, there is no hard line between any of these energy systems. Even when you're sitting on the couch, you are using a tiny bit of glycolytic and neuromuscular power. It's just that the majority of it is aerobic because you're chill. And vice versa, even when you do a maximal sprint that's only six seconds long and you're being chased by a tiger, you're using some of the aerobic energy system, just a very, very small portion. So 
all energy systems are used all of the time and one energy system is used most of the time in maximal efforts of any duration. Remember, a maximal effort can be of a different duration. You can have a 30-minute maximal effort. You can have a five-second maximal effort. People sometimes tend to confuse the term maximal effort with sprint or <coughs> equate those two terms, and that is not what I mean here. You can do a maximal effort for 30 minutes. You can do a maximal effort for the Colorado Trail if you do Lachlan. So that's our hard rule. There's no line between these energy systems. And the lines can be, the boundaries will say, the intensity, the spectrums can be moved, right? Your glycolytic system might be 42 seconds long about right now. But if you train it extensively, you might be able to make it 51 seconds or 61 seconds. On the other hand, you might train it intensively and make the peak higher, but the duration might go down to 38 seconds, right? The same can be true for neuromuscular. The same can be true for VO2 max. There's a tension in the body between glycolytic and aerobic systems or VLA max, the maximum amount of lactate you can make or, can, or handle and VO2 max, the maximum amount of oxygen you can process, right? The body's always trying to achieve homeostasis. Generally speaking, it picks one system or the other of these two. They are inversely related. So if one goes up, the other tends to go down. If you train your VO2 max, really specifically, your VLA max will go down in most cases and vice versa. If your VLA max goes up, your VO2 max goes down. So this is one of the most fundamental questions we can ask of our athletes is, where are you on the VLA max or VO2 max spectrum? And how do we train you for your event, right? Why am I bringing up all this physiology and all this energy system crap? Here's why. This is a really simple rule. The same energy system parameters that apply on the bike apply in strength and conditioning. Most people overlook this fact completely. In order to understand this, you've got to understand time under tension. So if I put you in the squat rack and we put weight on the bar and you put it on your back and you start doing squats, we can measure the time under tension, the total amount of time it takes you to complete one set of however many reps you decide to do. And that is the energy system you work. It's the same thing. Now it's contingent on a few bits and bobs. One of those bits is when you're squatting in the squat rack, if you stop at the top of the squat when you're standing and you just hang out for five seconds or 10 seconds, you're disrupting that time under tension. You're giving yourself a rest. You're kind of resetting, sort of, because in that example, you're still holding the weight. So the system isn't completely resting. Actually, a better example, that would be deadlift. So let's say you, because deadlift, at the end of the set, the bar's on the floor. You're not doing any weight. So if you pick up the bar and do one rep and then put it back down and then you completely relax and let the bar go, then you're disrupting your time under tension. And generally speaking, this would not be advisable in most workout conditions. So what's the ultimate example of a long time under tension? An isometric exercise, like a wall squat. So you put your back against the wall 
and you put your knees and your hips such that they are a 90 degree angle is created between the lower leg, the upper leg, and the torso, right? You make yourself a little L-shaped Tetris figure and you hold this position continually for 60 seconds or two minutes or five minutes. That is continual time under tension. The muscles are tense the entire time. We can mimic this effect in the gym by not pausing at the top or bottom of any exercise, right? So the same rules of bioenergetics apply in strength and conditioning that they do in cycling. That is when you do a maximal sprint of 10 to 12 seconds, what are the conditions of the sprint? It's neuromuscular power. It's ATP that's generated very quickly or is latent in the muscle. And it is alactic and anaerobic. This is why if you're riding along at a really easy pace, we'll say recovery pace or zone one, whatever you want to call it, and you slap it into the big ring and you sprint like a crazy demon for eight seconds, as hard as you can. It doesn't matter how hard you go. Go to the moon. But it's only eight seconds. Then you sit down. What happens? Your respiration rate really barely goes up and it'll be delayed. Your heart rate will go up, but again, it will be delayed and you will not feel soreness in your muscles normally, unless you carried a lot of fatigue into that sprint or you were incredibly glycogen depleted and dehydrated, then you can make yourself sore in eight seconds. But those conditions aside, assuming you're relatively recovered and hydrated and fed, sprint as hard as you can for eight seconds and you will create no soreness. Why? Because this is an anaerobic, alactic energy system. It was maximal and less than 12 seconds. But if you extend that sprint to 20 seconds, everything changes because now what happens is you exhaust the neuromuscular system, the ability to make ATP, and you go into the glycolytic system. And the glycolytic system will burn sugar and it will produce lactate. Right? This is the necessary and natural byproduct of glycolytic metabolism. And when lactate begins to accumulate in the system, actually what happens is pyruvate splits into lactate and positively charged ions. And these ions start to cause muscle acidosis. A long time ago, we used to blame lactate on the problem, but really lactate is just like the fire truck that shows up at the fire. It's always there when there's a fire, but it's not actually the cause of the fire. It'd be like saying, Saying lactate is what causes you to slow down during hard exercise is like blaming fire trucks for all the fires at houses, right? You understand? So it's the positive ions that build up. That's what causes acidosis and the, the resistance to muscle contraction. It's not lactate. Lactate is the natural product, byproduct of glycolytic metabolism. And here's the magic part. Aerobic metabolism consumes three things for fuel, four actually, consumes oxygen, consumes sugar, consumes fat, and you guessed it, the aerobic metabolism consumes lactate. So this is why someone who's really fit and well-trained in different energy systems can be such an amazing athlete because they can sprint away from the Peloton causing an attack, attacking the Peloton and fracturing the group and causing gaps. 
and then they can settle into a high aerobic tempo. We'll say maximal lactate steady state or just below a high tempo, hard tempo or threshold, right? Just below threshold, just a, a half a point below threshold in a hundred point system. And they can hold that and then someone bridges up to them and then they can accelerate again. And every time they accelerate, they use the glycolytic system and they produce this wave of lactate that travels into the bloodstream. And then the aerobic metabolism consumes that lactate for fuel. So they never blow up. But that what that requires is a very well-trained glycolytic system and a well-trained aerobic system. If you're a sprinter type person and all you want to do is go ripping around your neighborhood sprinting to town limit signs, but you don't build a proper aerobic base, then you've got so much muscle mass that you can generate this massive wave of lactate, perhaps more than our well-trained rider, but you have no aerobic system to consume that lactate. So you drown in it and you blow up on a long ride. Conversely, if you have a rider who only trains their aerobic system and they neglect the glycolytic system, they become a diesel engine and all they can do is just ramp up the pace to threshold and go, 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 go. And either the threshold is more than someone else's or it's not. And incidentally, the only way to be effective as a diesel like this is to do it on climbs. It doesn't work on flat roads unless you're in a time trial. Because when you lead someone else out a threshold on a flat road, assuming they can draft, they're just going to beat you at the line. So diesel engine riders who are big only make good time trialists or roulers or pack workers or domestiques. They don't win races. Generally speaking, they have to get away solo to win a race or be in a time trial. That also means they have to be aerodynamic. So you can have big riders who are diesels who are not very aero. And then what can they do? Well, maybe win a gravel race. So this is the physiological outcomes of bike racing in the real world involving physics. This is why the sport glorifies diesel engine riders who are really skinny and starve themselves and have no muscle mass. Yuck. So let's see, where was I? before I got on that little tangent. Energy systems, strength and conditioning. When most people go in the gym, they have a time under tension in most sets of around 20 to 30 seconds. This is from observation. So let's count in our heads. Imagine you're at your squat rack again and we've got the bar loaded up with weight and you put it on your back and then you start to squat down and you go, one 1,000, two 1,000, bottom one, one 1,000, two 1,000, clunk, there's your rep. So it takes, four to five seconds. And if you're following the standard operating procedure of doing 10 to 12 reps in most exercises, once you've gotten past the anatomical adaptation phase, well, if each rep takes four seconds and you do 10 reps, that's 40 seconds. And if it takes you a little longer than that, which could also be common, it's 50 seconds. Wait, I just did my math wrong. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. 10 times five is 50. Math. Science. So, Okay, let's say you're a little quicker at your squats. So even if you do three seconds, that's a second and a half down and a second and a half up. Three times 10 is still 30 seconds. You are solidly glycolytic. So this is objection number one. No, number two I listed was I'm always trashed when I train in the gym. And this is a reasonable objection, but most of the time it's because everyone, because most of the time, 80% of the time works every time. Most of the time, it's because athletes are training heavily in the glycolytic system, maybe even running into the end range of their glycolytic power each set. So you're training it extensively in the gym. 
And then we add that with the consideration that gym trains the muscles eccentrically. So the load in the gym for, for the same time under tension is always higher in the gym. One, because you're lifting way more weight in the gym than you will on the bike in most instances. Because of all those reasons I described earlier. And two, you're also adding eccentric load. Remember, when you're on the bike, even at low RPMs, you push down on the pedal for the down phase of the stroke, but then on the upside, your muscles get a rest because there's no eccentric load. The other leg is doing the work. So riding a bike is a bit like you, you pump the muscle with load and then you relax the load. You pump it with load and you relax. Or so the fibers contract and then they relax. They contract and they relax. Now there's a training effect that happens there and that's a challenge in its own way. But in the gym, the fibers are loaded on the way down and loaded on the way up. Loaded on the way down, loaded on the way up. In a squat, which is our example, they would be loaded down eccentrically because the muscle fibers in the quads are getting longer as the joints, as the bar descends. And then on the way up, they push and the fibers are getting shorter. That's concentric movement. So you have load in both directions and more muscle damage. And... This is why for if you if you do 12 second maximal intervals on the bike, let, let me give you a glycolytic example. If you do 24 second intervals on the bike and 24 seconds of time under tension in the gym, of course the gym's gonna get you way higher load. This is why when people strength train and then they get on the bike, they complain about being smoked all the time. Basically, it's ignorance of the fact that they're training the same bioenergic system. And it's also ignorance of time under tension. It's unawareness of how time under tension plays out. So if you want to find out what your time under tension is, just start watching the seconds for each set you do. And then you know what system you're training. And here's your bypass. If you're training and you're always smoked on the bike and you're doing squats and lunges and deadlifts, which are great exercises to do, not everyone would agree, but I happen to feel that for most athletes, they work really well. That's assuming that you have good primal standard and good stability. Sometimes you have to regress an exercise to build on it. Then, if that happens and you're trashed all the time, try reducing your time under tension. And you can go as far down to where you're just at neuromuscular power, which would be around 12 seconds. But you may even get good results by reducing it. Let's say that your time and retention you discover is 35 or 40 seconds. You're probably pushing towards the end of your glycolytic window. So try reducing it to 24. How do you do that? Well, you can either reduce the number of reps. Or, which means you might have to put on more weight in order to still get enough load. But if you're not comfortable putting on more weight, then you can play with the time on each phase of the lift. So let's say that you were doing a tempo of two seconds on the way down and two seconds on the way up, okay? Keep the same weight. Instead of doing 10 reps, do six reps, but you're gonna do four seconds on the way down and then stand up as quickly as possible with control. This is a completely different exercise. Four seconds on the way down requires a lot of discipline. So you have to count in your head. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, four, 1,000. Then stand up as fast as possible. Boom. So it'd be five seconds per rep. You're only doing six reps. You're at 30 seconds. Previously, 
you were at four seconds of rep doing 10 reps, you're at 40 seconds. So now we're doing 10 seconds less time under tension. See how that impacts your soreness. Full disclaimer, if you increase the eccentric load of the lift, you may actually create more soreness, but because it's at a slower rate of muscle lengthening, you might find you can get on the bike and still do your other efforts and be just fine. It all requires a bit of experimentation. My point is play with the system. You could also do quicker lifts and keep the tension way down. So for example, you could do uh, two uh, time and retention of three seconds per lift, do six reps, keep it to 18 seconds. So now we've cut it in half from where it was. So two seconds on the way down, stand up as quickly as possible. We'll assume that's going to be about a second. Also notice that at the bottom of the rep, if you go to stand up as quickly as possible, this acceleration requires a lot of force. This is very different than accelerating the weight at any old pace. So what I'm saying is you may actually have to decrease the weight to get that explosive component. Now, the more explosive your lifts are, the more form is required and the more control you must have. So don't jump into that too quickly. You may also be thinking, well, can I do 50 reps of squat and get into the VO2 max system? Well, you could. However, I would submit by the time you get much past 45 seconds of time under tension, your time is better spent on the bike doing high torque intervals or just simply regular old intervals. Because you're generating a fair amount of force and we're getting into sports specific world when you get to the point where your time under tension is that long. So this relates to my conversation about seasonality. The old school periodization of training would look something like the first phase is four to six weeks of anatomical adaptation that's getting used to the movements and starting to turn on the muscle fibers that have lain dormant, we'll say. The second phase would be hypertrophy. This is classically where you gain muscle size. Not everyone wants to do that. That's fine. The third phase would be strength. That's where you drop the number of reps down and you increase the weight. Some cyclists are very uncomfortable lifting very heavy like that. Unless you have a strength background, that's a place where you could potentially injure yourself. And I would agree with that. Although I would also submit that any strength and conditioning program should be supervised by someone with a really good eye who can correct your form. And that starts from the beginning, not just when you get to strength. The fourth phase would be power. That's where you do more plyometric movement and you're integrating much more quick, explosive lifts. And that's how you seal off a really good strength program. However, we can chuck all that out the window and you could simply look at it from bioenergetic standpoint. If you want to train glycolytically, so in the winter, if you're doing more endurance oriented riding and you want to train glycolytically, then a time of ten under tension for your lifts of 30 to 45 seconds might work really well. Conversely, if you live in a cold climate and you're cross-training by skiing and running, but you're doing shorter rides on the bike and maybe you're doing Zwift workouts or interval workouts indoors, that's probably got some pretty good glycolytic content to it. So maybe you don't want to double down on your glycolytic energy system in the gym. So then you keep it more towards neuromuscular and you play with different ways to still get good load while keeping your time under tension for each set down to 12 seconds. 
the more neuromuscular your workout is, the longer the recovery between sets should be. Three to five minutes is a good guideline, especially if you're doing maximal stuff. The more glycolytic, more around one to three minutes. If you're doing a postural corrective exercise in the gym, such as a prone cobra, that's a bodyweight exercise designed to help you increase your postural control and redefine the curves of your lumbar and thoracic spine. Then we're looking for a time under tension of three minutes in total. You may not be able to do that at first, but you can work up to it in 60 minute, 60 second chunks or 30 second chunks or whatever. And with only a few seconds of rest in between five or 10 seconds, as soon as you're, you're good, you start again. So that's the only way in which you would get technically into the aerobic or slow twitch side of things in strength and conditioning is with postural exercises like prone cobras or horse stance exercises or uh, Superman, alternating supermans would be an example of that. Perhaps even planks. Although planks, I think most people do them incorrectly. You really have to have good form, but this is true of any exercise in the gym. So when you're thinking in terms of seasonality, now you see that also we could use strength maintenance during the season. And if we keep our time under tension to less than 12 seconds, it's completely, what are our terms? Alactic and anaerobic. So even during a very hard, big volume week of training, you can supplement with gym if you're careful. And if you have good form, that means the proper neurological warm-up, and you know you can use the right technique, you can lift and keep your activities alactic and anaerobic. And guess what? It's purely neurological. You're just waking the system up and maintaining your peak torque. And you're not building a bunch of muscle damage in the system that's going to cost you, that's going to directly conflict with the effort you're doing on the bike. There's less double down of the glycolytic fatigue when you keep your time under tension short. Those are all the words I have to say on this topic. I know that was a pretty dense discussion. Hopefully it made sense. If you got super confused and you have a question, hit me on the Instagrams or just email me. Uh, I think info at cycling and alignment is still an active email address. I'm not actually sure, to be honest. I need to double check that. But you can also find my website, coldpures.com, and find my email there. That's what's up. Thank you, Cycle Pilots, for listening. I'm grateful for your attention. Please consider patronizing uh, the supporter of my podcast. That's Enduro Bearings. Those guys are amazing. Upgrade your whip. I mean, they make bottom brackets that are guaranteed for life. How fucking cool is that? Enough said about that topic. Hope you're doing well. Enjoy the November of your season and ride fast, ride consciously. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of cycling and alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading, some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. 
and that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings.